starting this off, can you give us a little bit about your background, where you come from, and what exactly it is that you do? And then we can work from there. Yeah, I think what I can say that's relevant to this conversation is uh, I think my background is I'm like one of these highly philosophical people and kind of always have been since childhood, like always asking my parents, why, 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 why this, why that? And always demanding like another why until <laughs> you just run out of whys and you can't answer. The teachers must have loved you in school. Uh, <laughs> my <laughs> philosophy teachers at least, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, yeah, well, that's where I like took a shining. That's where I realized, oh, this is the like topic and subject I just dreamed existed and I always wanted to study. Um, so yeah, then I like really got into philosophy when I was, um, I started studying it when I was 16. Um, and I kind of think like philosophy taught me how to think, but then you can run wild with your thoughts and your theories and all these things. And then meditation taught me how to not think basically. Mm -hmm. so, it's like a nice balance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. And, um, so I studied philosophy at university, but then so it's kind of like formally I was doing this study, but then on the side of my own time, I was uh, exploring consciousness and exploring many states of mind and uh, through like psychedelic use that like blew open the doors of perception and just became so perplexed about what is hmm. this really? What is this? What am I? Yeah. Uh, and then I started uh, pretty stringent, regular meditation practice. Uh, been mostly influenced by the pragmatic Buddhist scene. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my background there. My influence in the kind of terminology I might use. Um, folks like uh, Daniel Ingram, Shinzen Young, mm -hmm. Kenneth uh, Yeah, those folks really... Um, sort of guided me. I never had a teacher, never had a formal teacher, but I kind of had an act for this and pick stuff up. Um, and then I would say my kind of forte in uh, exploring meditation and coming to this is I would describe myself as a phenomenologist. So I'm super into explaining like nitty gritty detail of experience and phenomena in the mind and like how stuff interacts and um, cultivating different states and then describing them. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's, I don't know, intro. Yeah. I'm interested in the phenomenology. Um, I don't know too much about that. So can you explain what exactly that is and how does that relate yeah. to philosophy and meditation? Like how do those all blend together? Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. So, um, just the, if you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the definition given on phenomenology there is phenomenology is a branch of philosophy that studies um, consciousness from the first person perspective. Okay. And it's a kind of method to try to gain objectivity or subjectivity. Okay. Um, what does that really entail? It's just like examining your experience and trying to 
presume uh, as little as you can. So forget what we know about physics, forget what we know about neuroscience in the brain and just take your raw experience as it is mm -hmm. and try to understand, well, what is this thing just from your first person experience and observing it? Um, and you realize, well, from this side of things, there's no brain. I can't see a brain, smell a brain, taste a brain, any of that. Presumably there is a brain in there. Never experienced it though. Mm -hmm. um, and well, the thing about phenomenology is it, I think it is one of those, one of the most fundamental uh, lines of inquiry into trying to understand reality. Like you actually can't avoid it. You need to deal with the first person experience. And for the longest time, science has tried to ignore consciousness yeah. <laughs> you know, until, until it can't. It's like, no, we need to talk about this thing and, and explain it. Um, and your, your perception of the world, your experience informs all your other beliefs. So if you're going to, um, have, uh, metaphysical positions on how you think reality is constructed or what there is, those belief systems often are derived from your your state of mind your experience and as your state of mind changes your beliefs change and so it's like these things are just intrinsic mm -hmm. you can't really ignore phenomenology phenomenology is just a fancy word that philosophers have called this kind of subject thing but we're all engaged in trying to understand our first person experience mm -hmm. and um all all spiritual traditions as well make phenomenological claims about yeah about experience yeah, about the um, the direct subjective experience, just that, just the experience of experience. Yeah, That's phenomenology yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah, is it sort of also bringing like in? Is the goal to bring in objectivity to one's subjectivity? Is that the study? Like, is that the ology of it? Yeah, you could put it like that because it's trying to make kind of universal claims on the nature of uh, perception or mind yeah. like what what seems to be the case and track among all states of mind and among different subjects like what mm. can we relate in your experience and my experience it seems to be the same mm. but then it gets funky like that difference between subject and object collapses at some point. And, yeah, I feel like yeah. you can just keep going. That's the thing. And there's, there's, yeah, like there's an infinite amount of lines that can be drawn, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, yeah, this mm. is, I don't know. I can't explain what is going through my head right now, but it's like, um, yeah, we're all in our own subjective experience. And there is objectivity to it. There's certain things like we agree that this is, you know, we agree that this is a cup. We agree on just certain things that I guess make the world go round, make the world work. But then if you really examine it enough, you could say, like you said, I don't know if there's a brain in here. Is this really a cup? It's almost like you could go so far in phenomenology where things break down. Like objectivity eventually breaks down. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like ultimate, oh, yeah. ultimate, um, subjectivity 
almost breaks down objectivity, if that makes sense, and direct experience. I hope I'm yeah. making sense here. <laughs> oh, no, totally, totally. Yeah, I know what you're going to. Yeah, at some point, like those dividing lines just don't hold up. And the question about whether something is subjective or objective stops making sense. Yeah. And, um, yeah, things get relativized within the sort of greater context of, of mind. Mm. Even this split between like there, what's inside the mind and outside the mind, or if there is a mind or conscious and unconscious, you know, all of those, if you, if you examine deep enough, don't, don't hold up. Yeah. Would you say it even just becomes irrelevant to, to draw lines at some point between this is subjective experience. This is an objective experience. Like if you're truly in a, the direct experience of now it in a way transcends the objective and the subjective. Like if you're, if you're living in the now, if me and you and the listener are all living in the now, yeah, we can draw lines and I'm drawing lines now with my language inevitably, but really when it comes down to it, all of those lines that are drawn in our subjective experience don't mean anything. In the direct experience of the now, any line that is drawn is in the past. It's an illusion in a way. Again, I hope I'm making sense here. But yeah. like, what I'm saying is like, if one is like truly in the now, the, the current moment, there is no subjectivity. There is no objectivity. It's a constant, it's a constant creation. It's a constant death. The line is constantly being drawn. So it never really becomes mm. a line. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm getting it now. I'm getting what phenomenology <laughs> is. I feel like I've always been on that wavelength to a certain extent. I just never really knew that it was some kind of like field of study. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole thing. And there's loads of, um, like, uh, Western philosophers who are into this and, uh, they try to come up with their own jargon and taxonomies and things like that. Yeah. Huh. And I can see where meditation truly comes to be a part to play in that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it's kind of, uh, sort of, um, necessary, but very important for upgrading your perception so that you can, uh, be a bit more rig rigorous in your sort of phenomenological discernment. And that's kind of how I viewed meditation was, uh, upgrading, uh, certain cognitive faculties to, to perceive more clearly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't even know where to go from here, man. Mm. I got a lot of things going on in my head. I'm trying to. Think <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So, what? If you could explain what meditation has done for you, or maybe what it does in general for others, what are some things, or maybe the greatest thing that meditation? in its rigorous practice does for an individual. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what it's done for me is it's totally changed my life. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it flipped my world inside out and my whole understanding of reality, like really, um, in the deepest meaning. And with that has also, it's not only reconfigured my 
my direct perception, my day-to-day direct perception, and my understanding of reality. Uh, the most important thing is radically reduced my suffering levels, my typical suffering levels. And um, I think that's something everyone wants. And yeah. for me, there has been certain crucial like thresholds that were passed and, and there were like radical drops in suffering and increase in well-being. Yeah. So would you say it reduces your suffering levels because through your direct um through your direct experience you can kind of see things differently like your your brain or whatever your mind is able to process the moment a little differently through the workings of meditation yeah it's funny you say see things differently because there's a way in which i see things totally the same as i always did and yet differently as well what i what i think it is is the the normal sort of gross dry good sized objects of perception are seen how they always have been but they're contextualized within a greater spatio-temporal framework of mind so i'm seeing that and more yeah and it's like um I, I kind of think of analogy where you know how if you look into space um you know cosmologists say that the further into space you look you're looking backwards in time because it takes mm-hmm. time for the light to reach us mm. And you can look so far back as um, sort of moments before the Big Bang into the yeah. cosmic radiation um, microwave background. Uh, there's something kind of akin here with perception that you can look deeper at, at a faster rate into your, your normal experience here and perceive closer to the source and closer and closer and closer until you recognize that, that big bang moment, the source. And it's it's just kind of pervasive and is seen in, in all directions and perceived in all directions through all the sense gates. Yeah. You know, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. Right. Mm, that's an interesting way to put it. So how would you explain when we see the source that we transcend suffering? Um yeah i think it provides this equanimity and yeah i relate suffering to contraction where there's more contraction there's more suffering um and by contraction i literally mean like imagine clenching your your muscles and just that feeling tight and just tightness in your experience and when you release that feels better uh by being able to perceive back to source there's this recognition that the tightness no matter how sort of contracted it can be never fully clenches there's always this like permeation like punctures gaps and so that's a Contraction never gets to fully do its thing and fully, fully contract anymore. Interesting. So, yeah. It never gets to fully contract. Hmm. So in a way, it's like not real. It's an illusion. <laughs> it's a false yeah. contraction. 
Well, it's like, I don't know, there's a whole real, real illusion debate, uh, but it's just, things are just not as contracted. And um, yeah, that feels better because you're able to perceive uh, moments of experience at a finer rate and, and perceive in between the gaps. And you can see that not only within gross contractions, do those gross contractions um, slightly expand and contract, expand and contract, and so you're getting relief there. But even within the, like, the micro contractions, it's seen to be, yeah, not, not fundamental, not ultimate. And there is this recognition of uh, expansion entails contraction. You can't have contraction without expansion. Uh. And when you can see both at the same time, then yeah, that, that prevents the ability for one to complete itself. Yeah. It's like the, the yin and the yang thing. Yeah. I get what, yeah, I get what we're saying here. This is, um, it may seem a little abstract to anyone listening. But I understand mm. what the track we're on here. So, um, yeah, expansion implies contraction. But would you say that like the the current paradigm, if one is not on the meditation bandwagon right now, there's a little too much um, contraction in our being, and that is essentially what causes suffering. Like we don't know that one implies the other there like we think the contraction is the end all and the suffering is the end all and what was me and we get a little caught up in almost imbalance in in our being and um from there we suffer you know what i'm saying like we're just um we're just like a little imbalanced when you said yin and yang there's a little too much mm -hmm. um maybe a little too much yang we need yeah. a little more yin energy yeah that's one way i think you could frame it um i'm just thinking like what causes a lot of suffering for most people, say people who never meditated, um, was many sources of suffering. But I think a big one is just the perception of living in a very hardened concrete world. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there's a way you can just really loosen up your whole world. And even this, this sense of the body, like can just become way looser. Uh, way more, you know, things kind of go from solid to liquid to like gas, vapor, plasma, and then like just, mm. um, and you can do that for, yeah, just all the senses, just airify all the mm. senses. Um, but then there's also this form of suffering where um, believing something, really buying into something, having the mind contract around thoughts and ideas and taking them as very serious. And uh, again, that comes with contraction. There's a thought and then how much the mind contracts around the thought um, is um, corresponds with how much we buy into it and we believe it. Mm -hmm. And um, you can take the same thought and just, you can still hold it in mind and entertain it, but it's not representing itself as so solid. And subsequently, don't buy into it as much. And then eventually what well, this extends to all thoughts are not ever fully bought into. And then you come to this like radical agnostic position of like, I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. I know. <laughs> Nothing. Exactly. I wake up with that every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is good, man.
this is good. Uh, I don't even know where to go. Again, let's, um, I, yeah, like I honestly don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> let's go into uh, getting on this wavelength, right? Because I know you mentioned psychedelics. Would you say this is or that is one of the ways in, you know? Is that the key to open the door of perception or at least one of the keys? It's like a potential key. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the key, necessarily even a good key for everyone. Yeah. You know? And um, yeah, some people probably shouldn't mess with that stuff. Then mm. I don't know. And then there are some people kind of surprise me who can take a lot of psychedelics and then it just doesn't do much. Like they have a fun time. And I think maybe intention plays a big role here, but it never like fundamentally... It's not paradigm shifting it like it was for Yeah. <laughs> the lock, yeah. it never goes in the lock. I know what you mean. Yeah. But yeah. But for some people, it's a perfect fit and it opens, yeah. it truly opens the door to a new life. And it's up to one to walk through. It opens, well, for me personally speaking, I've spoken about this ad nauseum, so I apologize to anybody listening. Um, for me, it, it just, opened me up to new potentials. It opened me up to the true mystery of my life, the true not knowing that we talked about. And uh, that, I guess, is that was what was on the other side of the door that I couldn't see. Um, so ever since then, I've just been going with that mystery. You know, mm -hmm. I've just been going with that flow of um, inquiry in my life. And um, the funny thing is I haven't had to do psychedelics in maybe mm -hmm. over a year or two now. But still, what ha what it has granted me in that six hour session has never left me like that. Just that insight, that just very powerful insight in the moment, has never left me. And uh, for that, I revere them. Would you say the same about your experiences? Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they're really, um, really profound, really powerful, and uh, I take them very seriously. You know, I take playing with the mind very seriously. Yeah, as we should. And, um, you know, at the same time, I think there's a lot of like pitfalls that can come from too much psychedelic use and traps and just, there's a lot of crazy bombastic content that can come out of there uh, that can be distracting. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, people can explore, but it's maybe not like a direct line path to uh what we might call awakening on the sort of awakening axis yeah of things yeah and then eventually uh for me i've just found meditation as being sort of a more stable uh reliable route and more sort of clean less psychedelia paraphernalia that sort of might um kafuddle the mind you could yeah. say and just being being able to access um, kind of equivalent states through meditation. Mm -hmm. It might not have as much like fire and dance, but um, the parameters are similar. Yeah. In the way that it like bends space and time, your perception of space and time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little more, I guess, uh, controlled psychedelia, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you do take high doses of psychedelics, whatever it is, mushrooms, DMT, LSD, 
you're sort of at the whim of the chemical. And I know it is within all, it's all within your mind, you could say, but there's still an element of um, like you're on a roller coaster ride. So hang on, you know? Yeah. yeah. You can't get off whenever you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're in it. You're in it until you come down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've come to realize that as well and haven't had any use for them in a few years and regular meditation has also taken the place of the psychedelics, but I do revere them forever for what they, for what they allowed me to see even just for, you know, a few hours, like I said, yeah. um, it's all about, it's all about intentions when one goes into it and, um, just the environment you're in, the people you're with, that's the most important thing. Yeah. That's, that's what I would have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So once we get on this wavelength, right, of meditation, we establish this sort of yogic practices, these Buddhist practices into our life. How would you say that um, one changes their being if it does change? You know, if maybe you say we don't change, but do we change our livelihood at all in the way that we treat ourselves and people and maybe our career and the things that we say to people? Just some, um, how would you say maybe you've changed since? before and after you've had this practice wow yeah it's such a i can answer more personally that'd be easier because yeah generally how does it change people it's such a big open-ended question it's it's not obvious it's like it's not obvious how it changes people's beliefs or behavior and seemingly it cannot change those things like there's people who might have uh, deep insight and you know might legitimately believe that and yet behavior wise it's not obvious how they've changed you know the family don't even notice or doesn't know mm. that. Um, mm -hmm. for myself it's it's done a number of things there's been uh, I I see myself as just much more orientating towards peace yeah I just want a, a peaceful life and I'm not seeking chaos and craziness. And how much of that is meditation? How much of that is just life experience and growing up? <laughs> I can't quite, you know, separate the two, but I think I think they are related. I mean, there's certain things like I stopped drinking alcohol yeah. uh, very naturally. That just and I, I really believe that's because of meditation just gaining more sensitivity to very subtle fluctuations of temperament and, and perception and being able to draw more uh, correlation between um, yeah, behaviors and effects and, and just tracking this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the drinking alcohol just like very naturally just fell away. Mm -hmm. Never decided to just, that's one thing. I think also for me, th there's a, a sort of type of intelligence called theory of mind, which is your ability to sort of model other people's minds. So, you know, they've done studies on children where before a certain age, a child just can't understand that there's another being oh, yeah. who has a different perspective <laughs> like you know the two-year-old just doesn't even understand that you can't see what i can see and like that's why like peekaboo works it's like if i don't <laughs> see you then you're gone <laughs> you <know? Yeah>. mm -hmm. <laughs> um 
And um, as we get older, you know, our theory of mind sort of increases and develops. But I've found that as I've spent more time understanding my own mind and seeing how how I react to things and seeing the causes and conditions and how, um, like where, yeah, where sort of things react and build upon each other and being able to catch that stuff with more metacognition, catch yeah. the moments in myself. And then I can uh, start seeing it in other people and start recognizing. Mm. So I, I think it's increased my theory of mind ability mm-hmm. and that's helped me to relate to people more understand more where people are coming from and sort of see in the moments to see like insecurities and reactions. And then um, it, it's one thing to see, it's another thing to kind of then um, uh, curate your, your behavior and your, your words that it comes later. Yeah. But I, I think I see development there. Mm-hmm. And I would, yeah, sort of radically relate that to meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say there's um, some kind of natural discernment in curating your actions toward yourself and others that comes about? Like you just know what's good for you and what isn't good for you, right? Like you knew alcohol or whatever, whatever our vices are. We just know with this awareness from meditation, from regular meditation, we just know what is and what isn't good for us. Would you say that's just like kind of comes natural? Yeah, I think you said it. Yeah, it's a very natural process in that yeah. the body just doesn't gravitate towards certain uh, behaviors or actions. And it just knows better that, hang on, that's going to create more contraction and suffering and yeah. like disruption. Mm-hmm. And why would I do that? Like, yeah, exactly. So it's like the path, it takes the path of least resistance. And it's it's natural in the sense that it's not top-down mediated in that I didn't have to uh, kind of think with the intellect, yeah. don't do this or be taught this by given some rule set. It's any of that kind of interpretation can come after the fact if I sort of reflect back and try to put words on my experience. Well, why did I not do this? Makes mm-hmm. sense. But yeah, then it just becomes like trusting, trusting the trusting yeah. the flow and the path of least resistance in the body just like, doesn't want to suffer and people don't want to suffer. And so it's like yeah. learning, learning from mistakes. Like you're getting, you keep getting burnt if you do that thing. So yeah, don't do that. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the path right there. You keep getting burnt yeah. by doing this thing. Don't do it anymore. <laughs> Yet it seems as though human beings don't learn their lesson. We keep doing that thing and that thing keeps burning us. Well, I mm-hmm. see that as the purpose of suffering in a way. And that's what the sages all say as well. Suffering is to bring us into this natural discernment so that we do refine our life and um, we become a little bit happier, you could say, a little bit more joyful in the moment, in the way that we curate the moment for ourselves and other people. But um, yeah, you just got to be aware enough to get the message. It's really that simple. That's why meditation is so important, man. It, yeah. it, it just allows you to feel that discernment, you know? Yeah. Truly, yeah. Feel it. Pay attention to more details in the moment to, to see. Yeah. Yeah, which which moments along the chain in in your in your sort of commerce stream are mm. causing the, the big disruptions and um... Yeah, man. I feel like it makes life easier too. Even though we see and may be aware of more things in the moment, one may say, like, why would I I got enough things to worry about? <laughs> why mm. would I want to have more things enter my um state of mind? Wouldn't that convolute my thoughts? It's actually 
quite the contrary. I feel as though once one is more aware, you're able to better manage oneself in the moment, if that makes sense. It's like that the stuff is still going on and your awareness just mm-hmm. brings more um, light to the goings on of your life. And with that awareness, with that light shining, um, one is able to make more, uh, just better judgments and whatever comes about. But the judgment isn't like thinking. The judgment, like we said before, it's just natural. There's just somehow this natural harmony that comes from a meditative mind. Don't know how to explain it, but yeah. you obviously know what I'm talking about. And if yeah. anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, just adopt a meditation practice, a regular meditation <laughs> practice, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. You get you get a deep, serious trust in in the process. Yeah. Uh, that's where a lot of relief comes from. It's like, you know, this organism is going to get burned and it needs to learn and it will do that thing. And you just like allow it. Really yeah. Just, yeah, allowance. Allow, yeah. Allow things to unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, that takes so much pressure off. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. It takes so much pressure off the, the sense of the individual, the sense of mm-hmm. like control, like individualistic mm-hmm. control. Like I, cause I think I said before that we gain more control with meditation. So that might seem, um, like I'm contradicting myself, but it's, it's not like Gary is controlling. It's like, I'm letting my hands off the wheel and there is, I'm being controlled in a way, you know, but I'm being controlled by the process, by something that has a better, um, a better idea of how I should be conducted. So I go with that flow, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. I was just going to say less like a personal sense of control. There's no like uh, trying to change. It's more going with the Tao, going with the way, going with the flow, as they say. Yeah. And even like I think of it, the, especially when you get into this, you know, no self territory, that there before there used to be this kind of presumed puppet dictator of consciousness that's like trying <laughs> to hold, hold onto the wheel and, con- you know, control, got the puppet, turn the ship, right? Mm-hmm. And, then you get into this more decentralized mind where you let all the parts play their role and take turns. And there's no one mm, sub agent that thinks it rules the show and is always trying to like keep a hand on the helm. Like that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Decentralized mind. That's good. I like that. (laughs) Mm. And when we are too much caught in the ego, it's this false centralized point of reference when really we are all in this one mind we're just like nodes that are involved in this the decentralized mind of the universe of god if you want to say mm-hmm. and when we think we are in control we almost literally disconnect ourselves from the mind almost like a neuron that disconnects itself in the brain like it can't make that connection and from there that's where suffering ensues like when we that might seem a little abstract, I know, but it's just as simple as like when you think you're in control of it, you cause your own suffering, you know? Yeah, so we, we touched upon that no self, right? And why this this kind of the topic of the whole conversation. Um, how would we expand upon why no self is like uh, salvation in a way? Why, I mean, we might have already explained it, 
So I don't know if we want to repeat ourselves, but why is this sense of no self to somebody that doesn't know any better? Um, mm. Why is that maybe a beneficial way to see, to see, <laughs> just to see in general that there is no sense of self here? Yeah, it's, it's that sort of intersection between uh, what delusion and suffering and like ways of making sense of the world that don't cash out, that keep um, making you keep sort of running into a wall. It's like, why doesn't this work? Why, you know, I've got this, this model in which there is a self and the self is trying to control things and yet it doesn't keeps not getting what it wants and yeah. um, it's possible to you know what, what i think we've, we've greater concentration greater metacognition greater noticings per second greater sensory clarity contextualize that sense itself and see oh it's not what i thought it was it's it's like a thought and um it comes and goes and it that sense of self doesn't define how reality is really structured. It can, it can be there, it can appear, but it's not, there's a confusion between thinking it has um, greater, okay, I'm gonna use a fancy philo philosophical word, ontological primacy or, or status, which means um, like how it really exists. Yeah. That, that it, it, doesn't, it actually doesn't have that um, significance to it. It's like if I yeah. think of a, a pink elephant, that doesn't mean there's a real 3D, fully formed, independent pink elephant in existence now. There's, there's the thought of the pink elephant, and we yeah. understand what that means. The same, the sense of self is equivalent. I see, yeah. In this way. Yeah, so there's really truly never a, and when we're saying sense of self, um, we mean like the Gary self or the Roger self, like that sense of self. There's truly never a moment where there is just like the pink elephant. There's never truly the Gary. It's a continual <laughs> changing, you know, it's a phenomenon that continually changes as in Gary that see people see now on screen was not the Gary when I was five years old, although my parents called me Gary at five and then they call me Gary now. So that's where it kind of get, gets lost in the, gets lost in the mix is we, uh, we think we're the same thing, but no, we're a continually changing non-self. Like we're, there is no solidity here, if that makes sense. It may seem like it on camera. It may seem like it to me. I feel real, but really, no, this is just the, it's a, there's nothing here that stays here <laughs> other than the here, other than the here and now, you know, that's really what we are. If there is a self with a capital S, it's just the current, direct, immediate moment. That's it. Right then and there. But that is not even a, a solid thing either. That is a continually changing thing. It's a paradox at the end of the day. This mm. whole non-self and self-talk, it's truly a paradox. There is no concrete. And the moral of the story is none of us are concrete <laughs> here. And um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, so it, like it even goes deeper is that that sense of identity is kind of pernicious in that it can attach to many things, many parts of experience. Yeah. Um, it can even blow up to in, in 
encompass the entirety of experience, like, oh, everything is self, it's all me, and there is no one else. It's called solipsism. Um, but like you're, you're getting to, okay, nothing's concrete. Well, then if nothing's concrete, then what is it? It's like ephemeral goop or liquid <laughs> or gas or something. And it's transient. It's passing. Yeah, I don't know. But, yeah. but that, that factor of its viscosity or solidity or lack of, of whatever substance this is and it's made of, what does that have to do with self? Like, why is that a relevant uh, determinant in, in understanding what, what self is? So that's a parameter of experience that can be turned up or turned down or you know, um, altered. And then when that is seen, it becomes kind of an arbitrary feature of experience. So things can be more solid or less solid. But if you have this insight, you know, that's not what makes something self or determines how real it is that only determines how real something seems hmm okay how something seems yeah damn okay this is good well i would say nothing is real per se that doesn't last and anything that is a seeming separation within this one goop, <laughs> the many different mini goops within the one goop isn't real. It's when you divide. The divisions are not real. They're there, they're present, but they're not the whole, dude, we're getting to the point yeah. of not getting yeah. into a language. It's like, it's both, like I said, it's a paradox. The divisions are there, but when you get caught at the divisions, that's when it becomes unreal. If that makes sense, I'm saying that a lot in this conversation. <laughs> I think I think I can try to put words to this. Okay. So one way in which I think the mind works is the mind sends out signals, and those signals are only interpretable or meaningful if they come with their counter signal. Actually, so mm. um, if there is the sense of self that understanding of selfhood that there is a self the detecting of it the experiencing of it is only um available if there's actually this counter signal of no self yeah. also coming along for the ride it's just that that no self quality might be really really faint and diminished and kind of in your blind spot of perception and like not in your focused attentional range but in like kind of the periphery of experience yeah. mm -hmm. And then those can like flip. So you can get kind of like not self, self, not self, self, but they, they always codependently arise together. And yeah. this, this even includes the sense of realness or illusion. So there's states where, oh, everything seems like an illusion or no, no, this is it. This is really, really it. And that's, if you're detecting that because of some live felt experience in the moment, I'm pretty sure this is how the mind works is signal and counter signal both codependently arising and just catching one side of the coin at any given time. Yeah. But it's possible to train your perceptive faculties to have sensory clarity in your focused attentional range and your peripheral awareness and catch them coming together. Mm. And then again, you see them come and go and you stop buying into either really the ultimately yeah. what this is 
is neither real nor an illusion. Also, this applies for the sense of um, unity and separateness. If you have a sense of unity, it's only made sense because it has to be contrasted with something. You can't have black without white. What would, you couldn't conceive of only black without white. You couldn't conceive of only unity without some smidgen of separation mm -hmm. that comes with it. Mm. And then you catch both or like my world is fractured. How can I understand that my world is fractured? Because I'm comparing it to its opposite, that yeah. a world that's not fractured, that's mm -hmm. whole. And so then, like, it's kind of either or and neither nor. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope that saying, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this whole thing makes sense, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, you're saying there's a point of awareness that we can reach through meditation where it transcends both of those polar, like, there's it transcends either polar opposite, transcends the yin and the yang. And at that point, it almost like seems like we become quantum. We go beyond the binary of the zero or yeah. the one. And then there's yeah. this third option that is both and neither the zero and the one. And that is where I feel is like, that's the sage, you know, that's where the sage sits. There is, there is no, um, I think we've said this before, there is no conclusive self or no self. There is no conclusive real or unreal. It's just a simple, just a simple paradox at the end of the day that truly words can't convey. Yeah. But I know what you mean. There is this yeah. transcendent point of awareness where one could reach through phenomenology, through direct experience, through just simply witnessing the moment that does transcend all dualities of life, non-duality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like yeah. how you say quantum kind of, I, I call this, this, this kind of a mouthful the superposition perception of enlightenment. Yeah, the superposition. Wow. Yeah. The superposition, what was it? Perception. Perception of enlightenment. Of enlightenment. That's good. The SPPE. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The superposition. It's like a bird's eye view of all the goings on, the comings and going of the human experience. Well, Which, well, even there, you got to be like, pay attention to, yeah, do you have this sense of like detachment and that you're, you're outside of it? Yeah, it's and not again, outside. It's no, actually yeah. more involved with both. Yeah. Like, in a way, it could yeah. see it's both. It's always both. It keeps going, man. The paradox never ends. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, you could see both from a bird's eye view if you are both in a way. It's just a. Uh, it's what side of the coin do you want to look at it? You know? Yeah. If everything yeah. is the center, then there is no center. If everything is the self, then there is no self. If everything is yeah. real, then yeah. everything is unreal. You can just keep yeah, going, literally. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, hey, man, I don't really know what else to say. I feel like we could just keep going on this train of paradoxes and polarity all day. Um trying to think of a good note to wrap this up at what does this all mean like is this um is this just yeah. us entertainment you know are we just playing with words here having some fun hopefully just playing some mind games with each other like why why do we go down this path you know to be able to find this sppe yeah yeah what does it mean i don't know <laughs> <laughs> are we just having fun is this a game that we're playing with each other it's like i think I think so, and I think it's probably the, 
best way to look at it, like the infinite game and infinite play. What it what it does or kind of what it did for me was resolve a like fundamental existential yeah kerfuddlement confusion uh, the yeah. some there's something now that sort of deep in in my my lack of core core is not confused and it's not not confused because it got an answer it's the the part of the mind that's looking for um a resolution to this like question of meaning yeah has been contextualized within something greater and seem to be that thing that that inquiring mind doesn't get to get an answer it doesn't get yeah. to ultimately touch base with the source and then um yeah it's um so it's kind of solved some some confusion for me i see which is nice yeah there's a lot of confusion in the world so i can see why that would be beneficial for mm. all of us here uh, if this conversation wasn't too confusing for anybody <laughs> hope it wasn't um i think it made sense to me but at the end of the day yeah it's not sense in a way that is uh logical um this mm -hmm. stuff is just felt this stuff is um there's only so many podcasts one could listen to i guess is my point there's only so much one could listen to these these uh talks non-dual talks it doesn't really do it justice at the end of the day i think we said this is uh we are just playing some kind of game you know um truly if one wants to go down this path i would recommend just shut off technology altogether and just go meditate that's what's really important yeah. go meditate oh, yeah. disconnect from the comings and goings the craziness of the world even podcasts that talk about this stuff disconnect from that and connect with the inside and maybe this conversation will make a little bit more sense and the world will make a little more sense and you will make a little more sense and yeah i think uh <laughs> that'll lead the amen, way brother. <laughs> amen amen hallelujah well hey um I don't have anything else to say. Uh, you want to wrap it up? Yeah, that's cool. That's All right. Good. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank um, you. Yeah, really um, great chat. For Appreciate sure. It. Appreciate your time, effort, and wisdom. Appreciate anybody that listened this long. Peace and love to you, man. Peace and love.